as they make their way out. I'll preface our scripture reading this morning by telling you that it follows last week's. We're still in Mark 7. We're going to pick up at verse 24. But I think we'll all be helped if I also read for you Matthew's account of the same event. And that's found in Matthew 15. So you may want to begin to turn there now and keep your finger in it throughout the service because I'll be referring to it pretty often. That's Matthew 15. But let's begin with Mark 7, again, verse 24 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon, cast the demon rather out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right. And now Matthew, same event, chapter 15. I'll begin at verse 28. It runs through verse, I'm sorry, verse 21 and runs through verse 28. And again, this is the same account, but just in more detail. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Amen and amen. All right. This text, it opens with Jesus leaving the primary region of his ministry, which was Galilee and Judea. Tyre and Sidon. They were cities on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were north of Galilee. And they were outside of the Jewish homelands. In Jesus' day, Tyre and Sidon were cities in the region of Phoenicia, which was part of the larger country of Syria. Now today, present day, they're both located in Lebanon. little geography history for you. So why is it that Jesus, why is it that Jesus traveled there? Tyre was outside of his region of his ministry. 
We're not told exactly. It's not there. But we can surmise that the Lord was going there for a bit of R&R, a bit of rest and relaxation. Now, I've concluded that because in Mark's verse 26, he says that Jesus went to a house and did not want anyone to know it. So we can glean from that that Jesus is interested in some privacy. That conclusion also makes sense because, as you might recall in Mark 6, that Jesus wanted a, uh, a bit of a rest period for his disciples. But his desire for that, it was interrupted by the crowds that had gathered on the shore, numbering 5,000 men. And then that night they sailed without having that rest period, without any R&R. They sailed throughout the night to another area where he performed many healings and he got caught up as we read last week, in the nonsense of the Pharisees. Be that as it may, while traveling outside of Israel, a local woman, a Syrian-born Phoenician, she came out to see him, actually to plead with him, to beg a personal request. Now, between the two accounts of Mark and Matthew, we know that she was not Jewish. She was a non-Jew. That's a, that's a Gentile. And specifically, she was a Canaanite, which might remind you of something in the Old Testament, right? The Canaanites were enemies of God. God destroyed them. And those that remained because of disobedience of the Israelites who let them live, he then displaced them from the promised land so that the Jews could move into it and occupy it as the earthly fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But at brass tacks, or boiled down if you prefer that, all that's to say that this woman was as outside of the covenant of God's people as a person could get. But yet, even though an outsider, one not in the covenant, she wasn't seeking a pagan priest, or she wasn't headed to a a pagan temple to worship a pagan god, to implore some fictitious Canaanite god for healing... She didn't go there. Instead, she somehow had heard about the person and the work of Jesus. And she was bound and determined to beg him, to ask Jesus, whom she rightly identified, by the way, as God. In Matthew's version, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She cried this. Now, maybe this was a humble address. All right, Maybe she's just showing some sort of prostration, humility to a a man who's popular and who has the authority of a lot of people. But as the verbal exchange begins to unfold, it seems rather that her identification of Jesus is more or also out of a sense of belief or faith. Her plea is not new to Jesus as unique People all over Galilee, they've been seeking him. They've been resting him from his bed and from his meals and from his time with his disciples. And they have been begging him for for freedom from their ailments and their diseases and from demonic possessions. But this time is different. This time we're presented with an apparent problem. I say apparent. You'll You'll hear that word several times, apparent. It's really not a problem, but it does make this text more difficult to understand. 
this time we're presented with this apparent problem, and that is the response of Jesus. In previous instances throughout scriptures, we're told that Jesus saw people as sheep, right, without a shepherd, and that he had compassion on them. Just one example, I call it Exhibit A, you know, prime example. You've heard me uh, quote this from the pulpit before. It's Isaiah 40. It's the Old Testament, verse 11. Isaiah 40, 40, 11 says that he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young So how then do we make sense of this circumstance in this morning's text? Jesus' response to a person with such a deep and obvious need. To rightly answer that, let me remind remind you that as a matter of biblical interpretation, we always do well to not look at a verse or even a single passage in isolation. Context, eh, It's a lot. It's not everything. But while it's not everything, it is critical in rightly understanding the important points of Jesus' messages. As I'm sure you know, we've all been to doctors, and they don't ask you, well, they do ask you, what is your complaint? But they don't take your complaint of sniffles or a sore arm and immediately diagnose you with some disease. They don't conclude that, at least not with those two statements. They Any physician worth his or her salt and diploma, or any physician is going to ask you a lot of questions. They're going to ask you about your body and your habits and your eating and your sleeping and maybe where you've been recently. They're going to ask you the circumstances under which you've been experiencing your pain and your symptoms. That's what a good doctor does. And if you give the right answers, that hopefully leads the the doctor to a right diagnosis of your situation. And that's how we should approach the scriptures, putting all those different puzzle pieces together, not in isolation. This passage, I've said it's problematic, but it's problematic because on its surface, again, it appears as though Jesus may not initially care about this woman or her demon-possessed child. We know that's not true, but how do we get around this appearance? At the very least, the response of Jesus appears to be inconsistent with the previous responses that he's, he's shown to us in Mark's gospel. It's an anomaly, an apparent anomaly to be sure. You may recall the, the miracle of destruction What am I talking about there? Remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed and it withered? That's a large fig tree. It wasn't a little bush. It had roots. Remember, they could see the roots from it the next day. It had died. That was a miracle that he performed. He accelerated the, the natural. Supernaturally, he cursed and caused that tree to die. And in that act, on its surface, his killing something, right? Jesus is causing something to perish, might seem contrary to the mission of God and to the nature of God. But in that circumstance, it's not. Again, we need to understand the context. And so ask yourself this. In the texts under consideration this morning, 
Does the description of events and your conclusion fit with what you know to be true of Jesus elsewhere in the Bible? I will tell you that some people who, who seek to disprove Scripture, right? they don't believe in it, so they look for ways to disprove it, to find fault with the Bible's infallibility, they've used this passage as ammunition to try to shoot down the sinlessness of Jesus. They proffer, they throw out the claim that Jesus was unkind here and that he, they incorrectly claim that the Lord ignored this woman's plea for help and then he sinned by disparaging this woman as a dog. But that surely doesn't describe our Lord and Savior, does it? That's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And so we have to interpret Scripture, the unclear, the difficult, maybe not what's plain, by all those other things which are plain, which are clear. After all, this is the same Jesus who in Luke 7 He interrupts a funeral procession of his own volition. He interrupts a funeral procession. He raises the dead man back to life. And he restores this young man back to his widowed mother. This all happened when they're on their way to the graveyard to bury him. That is compassionate. That's Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, does this story in Mark 7 conflict with that? Or are they somehow compatible? Well, to discern that, we've got to stand back from the surrounding context. We need to look at it. This is like an Impressionist painting. If you get too close, it doesn't make sense. But when you stand back, ah, everything's pretty clear. Not just little colored dots. Oh, this is a a person and a tree and a lake and an animal. I see what's going on. They're having a picnic. And it becomes really clear when you stand back and take it all in at a distance. So let's remember something obvious. Verse 24, which we started with in Mark chapter 7 this morning, that follows verse 23. I went to public school, and even I know that. 24 comes immediately after 23. Last week and the week before, we saw that the disciples, they were not appreciating the deity of Jesus. They weren't understanding who he was, even after he had miraculously fed 5,000 people, over 5,000 people, with a few fish and some loaves. And then immediately after that, in verses 1 through 23, we're reminded how the Pharisees didn't believe who he was. They didn't want to believe who he was. They were blinded by their own selfishness, by their own piety or perceived piety. And so the events immediately preceding the Syrophoenician woman in verse 24, they show us people who should have gotten it. These these guys, the Pharisees and the disciples, they should have gotten it. They should have known better. For they had the scriptures. They had the teachings of the prophets. And they were taught and recited the prophecies of the Messiah. They were steeped in God's word. But here, this most unlikely woman seems to get it far more accurately than the covenant people of God did. Up to now, the Lord, he's been dealing with issues of purity and defilement. He's been debating with and explaining to the religious formalists 
who were uber concerned, by the way, they were extremely concerned to avoid touching anything that might seem to make them unclean, right? They were really concerned with externals. And chief among those unclean things to avoid was a Gentile. And more so, a Gentile woman. Someone who was not only outside the covenant family of God, but who was prohibited, bet you didn't know this, from being taught the law. A woman couldn't sit at the, foot of a, at the feet of a rabbi and be taught the law. Because she was a woman. Ignorance and confusion confrontation, antagonism, accusation, and a focus on externalism. Those are what Jesus had been up against just prior to his traveling to Tyre. And all that closes out in verse 23. Now in verse 24 and following, we discover confidence in the most unlikely place, right, the pagan city of Tyre, and by the most unlikely of persons. Historically, an enemy people of God, a Canaanite woman in Tyre. She had conviction in Jesus regarding his nature and his mission. To see this clearly, we can't just rely on Mark's account. Remember, early on when we began Mark, we talked about the immediacy of Mark, sort of as a missionary. He speeds through things. Things are immediately, things are fast-paced. And to accomplish that sort of writing style and perspective, Mark does not include the progression of the conversation as Matthew does. In Mark's verse 27, the woman simply begged Jesus to remove the demon. And then Jesus responded, seemingly in the sequence of events in Mark, he responded that he must take care of the children and that he's not really interested in the little dogs. That appears to go to the woman's point of begging. But in Matthew's version, we're provided with her explicit cries. We get more detail. Have mercy on me, O son, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. That was Jesus's response, his active response. He didn't answer a word. He didn't say anything. Now, contrary to some poor commentators. If you have one of these commentaries, throw it out. These commentators might say that Jesus was ignoring her. And he was not ignoring her. That would be mean. Instead, he was responding to her, if you will, with silence. He's not remaining quiet as a form of punishment or judgment. Instead, his silence is purposeful. And here's why, right? From this discussion in Matthew, we see that the disciples are getting pretty uppity. They're notably getting agitated. They couldn't really abide this woman, and they were losing patience. They were letting, rather, Jesus, seeing this, was letting the situation bubble up. He was letting it percolate a little bit. The disciples saw that Jesus wasn't doing anything to assuage this woman from harassing them. At least that's their perception. She wasn't harassing them. She was begging Jesus, and maybe she was inconveniencing them, but they they twisted that. Send her away, they said, for she keeps crying out after us. 
She wasn't crying out after them. She wanted Jesus. They're bothered by the distraction. And that same thing happened in Matthew 19, which is later on than Matthew 15. So they still didn't get it from this situation. You'll remember the little children were vying for Jesus' attention. And they said, send them away. And Jesus said, no, 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 Let, let's suffer the little children. Let's put, let's put up with them. Theirs is the kingdom too. They need to hear this. They need to meet me. Let's be honest here. The disciples were selfish. They wanted Jesus to get rid of her. And we see from Matthew's verse 24 that Jesus responded not to the woman, but to the disciples. He says, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. All right, that's to the disciples. Now, this comment is really, it's really important. As Jesus is saying that this is what he came to do. This is what he was sent to do. Not only is his life limited, Jesus' life limited by humanity and his ability to do, or sorry, his ability to be only in one place at one time, but he's also constrained by the directive of his heavenly Father. Jesus has, if you will, divine marching orders. God told him what to do, and Jesus obeyed that perfectly. His mission, charged to him by God the Father, is to speak to and reveal to the covenant people of God, which was up to that time the Jewish people, the reality of God's kingdom and the mystery of who Jesus is, progressively revealing himself and what he's come to do and how they are to respond to that, to believe and to repent. That's the good news. Jesus was not, he just wasn't at liberty to attend to everyone in need. Now, however legitimate, however genuine, however deserving, however heavy their pleadings might be, he couldn't do it. And by the way, in his limited humanity of time and space and strength, he couldn't practically attend to all of humanity. His express purpose was to do the will of God which was to apply his mercy, his grace, his message to the covenant people of God. This is why Jesus didn't go to the seats of civilization. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to the higher learning areas of Alexandria. He stayed in this little backwater area of Galilee. This is where God's people, his covenant people were. Now the Gentiles would eventually... They would eventually be preached to. They would eventually have this good news presented to and for them. But that would be expressed through the apostles. That would be eventually communicated and confirmed by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles and upon the non-Jews, the God-fearers. That's all in Acts, by the way, the book of Acts. But that's not going to happen yet. At least it's not going to happen en masse. There were isolated exceptions, of course. You may remember Rahab in the Old Testament. The centurion in the New Testament. These are a couple of examples. But Jesus was not on a worldwide healing mission. 
Not everyone who came before him with a request was going to be a recipient of his generosity. Why? Because God chooses. Sometimes that's hard for us to swallow. Jesus chooses. Just one example of this is the lame man at the pool. You may remember he was lame. He couldn't get up to get into the waters that were stirred up occasionally to be healed. Surely there were others, of course, at the pool who had mobility problems. Clearly, there were a lot of people there that had spiritual problems. But Jesus didn't include them. He chose this man. And I don't know why. And neither do you. And so there are mysteries here that we just have to accept. Jesus selected that man. You may be asking, is that fair? I'll say it's fair. It's not equal, but it's fair. It's more than fair. It's more merciful and generous because no one deserved healing. Not one. Now, in light of all that, this lady kneels down before Jesus and she gets more direct, less wordy, and more to the point. Matthew 15, 25, she says, Lord, help me. In other words, I know you have a mission to Israel, Lord, but I have a daughter at home and I have nowhere else to turn. I'm asking you, Jesus, to make an exception. Well, back to Mark. In Mark, Jesus says, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to give the children's bread to little dogs. Now, as I've alluded to, some will say that's Jesus talking to her in a derogatory manner. But it's not the case here. We know that dogs, that was a term for non-Jews, sure. So was swine. But this was understood by her as proverbial and cultural. It's not being disparaging to her as an individual. It's like earlier this week, one of you, one of you were having a conversation with me in my office. And this person was sharing with me the displeasure with a particular physician who had assumed care over him or her. Not even going to disclose if this was a man or a woman. But this doctor, I was told, spoke fast and didn't have a very good bedside manner. Certainly not one that was desired. And so the doctor was referred to, to convey this to me, as a Yankee. Perfect. This person wasn't disparaging everybody north of the Mason-Dixon line. He was just trying to help me understand the, 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 the character of this doctor. It was perfect. It wasn't derogatory to the doctor. So Jesus had said to the disciples, I'm here to look after the lost sheep of Israel, not to the dogs. Those are the children that I've come to feed. And by responding to the woman in this way, the Lord drives home the point both to the disciples and to her so that they'd all understand. And like Yankee, they got it. It's not right for me, says Jesus, to neglect the mandate of God by taking food reserved for the children and diverting it to under the table for little dogs to gobble it up. Even though Jesus doesn't use the term dogs here and the wild dogs, the feral dogs, the scavenger dogs, he adds that little diminutive word, that adjective, little, 
little dogs, which turns that wild animal into a house pet. I don't know that it makes it any more kind. He still calls her a dog. Maybe it's more easy to swallow. But anyway, he takes the edge off the reference to her being not one of the children of Israel to whom he was sent. Nevertheless, she sees the Lord for what he is and for who he is. She sees in him mercy and authority and power and salvation. Maybe not in the spiritual sense, but certainly salvation for her child from the demonic world. And by his pushback, Jesus isn't, let's be clear here, he's not being uncooperative or mean. Rather, Jesus is testing this woman to see how sincere she is, how genuine she is, how deep-seated her appeal is in faith, whether she maybe just has a casual interest in this healing or whether she has a major interest in Jesus himself as the only possible provider of such healing. It's a bit of a test. It's not right, says Jesus, to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. To which she says, I agree. This is verse 28. I agree. The children's needs must be met. But the little dogs, they have their place too. Even the dogs are eager to catch the crumbs that fall from the table. And those crumbs, just those crumbs, are enough to heal my daughter. Just touching the cloak of Jesus is enough to stop my blood disease from... It's been going on for years. Your power is far more... Well, it outweighs my problems so much. Just give me a crumb. Your authority over that demon doesn't require a full meal, God. Just a crumb will do the trick. And with that, she expresses a mountain of faith. Now, it's very likely that we'd be helped, I think. Right, we're reading this, but I think we'd be very much helped if somehow we could see the eyes of Jesus and the expressions of Jesus, and hear the tone of his voice, that would really help us get this and understand how he's meeting this woman at her need. Again, he's not being dismissive. In his perfect way, he's meeting her need. This I know about Jesus, and I think you do too, which is that the compassion in his eyes And the loving tone of his voice to the woman would have dispelled any idea that he was being derisive or somehow insulting. If he was being that way, this woman would have tucked tail and ran. She would have been angry. She would have been hurt. She would have been embittered. But instead of shutting her down, instead of doing that, the Lord's demeanor surely gave her room to display her faith. He does that to us also. He doesn't shut us down. He... He always gives us room to display our faith. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And that's what she did. She displayed her faith as a trailer, you know, a movie trailer of sorts, to the Great Commission, sort of a foretaste to the Great Commission where Jesus directed the disciples to go and share the gospel beyond Jerusalem and beyond their little local regions, their immediate regions, to the furthest ends of the earth, this display 
to the Canaanite woman was a preview and an object lesson to the disciples of what was to come. You, my dear Gentile woman, you can go home now. You will find your daughter well. And this is how people get saved. They don't find the Lord, they don't find his favor by debating criteria about purity or arguing claims to Abraham. They simply come to Jesus confident that he's the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's the Messianic Son of David who saves by grace. To whom shall we go? Is there any other place to go to be saved by grace? To be saved, period? I found this to be nicely summarized in verse 3 of Rock of Ages. You, of course, are very familiar with that hymn. Maybe not so much verse 3 of it, but I'm going to close with verse 3 here. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do give us your mercy. Do allow us opportunities to display our faith. And by your grace, cause us to have such faith, faith in you, faith that you'll provide for us on this earth, and faith that you'll save us unto yourself after we depart from it, Lord. Surely, surely, God, this is not our home. It's in Christ's name and by his authority we pray. Amen.